Hello, and welcome to the Mystery Barn Podcast. I'm Heather, and thank you for joining me today as we take a look at our next case. Apologies for the late release. We should be back on schedule, and I definitely appreciate your patience. This episode is slightly different than previous episodes. This case centers around an unsolved mystery that has baffled people for decades. Whether an actual crime was committed or if it was due to naturally occurring events is still undecided. This episode might contain some discussion of a mature nature, but this warning is more for the links I have provided in the show notes that may not be suitable for viewers of a young age. Some of the photos can be disturbing, so use your discretion for young listeners and viewers. You can listen and follow this podcast on Spotify, Podbean, Apple, Amazon, Google, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and several other podcast platforms. You can also follow me on Twitter at MysteryBarnPod, or reach out to me at mysterybarnpodcast at gmail.com. With that out of the way, let's get started. The excitement is palpable as 10 young Soviet hikers from the Ural Polytechnic Institute located in the city of Sverdlovsk prepare themselves to embark on an epic adventure in the northern Ural Mountains. They set their sights on the Ortorten Mountain, For those not familiar with the Ural Mountains, they are a mountainous range that stretch from north to south through the western part of Russia, along the coast of the Arctic Ocean to the Ural River and into the northwestern part of Kazakhstan. They also serve as a boundary between the continents of Europe and Asia. They are divided into five sections, Polar Ural, Nether Polar Ural, Northern Ural, Middle Ural, and Southern Ural. This area is also known as Siberia. Siberia is known for its harsh climate and unforgiving temperatures. In the wintertime, temperatures can average around 0 degrees Fahrenheit during the day, dipping into below freezing temperatures once the sun sets. It isn't unheard of for temps to drop several degrees below zero during these months, with temps sometimes reaching minus 40 degrees or even colder. And wintertime is precisely when this group of 10 hikers set out on their journey in January of 1959. The horrors that await these young hikers has all the makings of a fictional horror movie, only this was to become their reality. To this day, there is still no definitive explanation as to what happened to these ill-fated hikers. But I'm getting ahead of myself, so let's start from the beginning of their trip. Before I go any further, I just want to put a little disclaimer in there um, about the pronunciation. I am definitely not any good at pronouncing um, Russian names, so apologies in advance for messing it up. Thank you. Igor Dyatlov, an ambitious engineer at the Ural Polytechnical Institute that is now referred to as the Ural Federal University, was someone who thrived on challenges. He assembles a group of nine people to accompany him on the hike of a lifetime. Most of them were fellow peers, students, and friends of the same university. The hikers, comprised of eight men and two women, were grade two hikers. Upon completion of this hike, they would all be awarded grade three certification. At the time, grade three certification was the highest available in the Soviet Union. It would require participants to traverse 300 kilometers or 190 miles. The route was put together by Dyatlov and his group and was approved by the Zverdlovsk City Route Commission. This hike was considered a Category 3 hike, which is one of the most difficult to traverse. Not only was the route difficult, but they also planned their expedition to coincide with the most difficult time of the year to attempt it, January and February. 
But Dyatlov is an experienced hiker, and he chooses his team accordingly. They are all seasoned hikers, and they are filled with excitement and youthful enthusiasm. The group consists of the following people. Igor Dyatlov, Yuri Doryshenko, Ludmila Dabininya, Yuri Grovenishenko, Alexander Kolvatov, Zanata Komogorova, Rustam Slobodan, Nikolai the Beau Brigneau, Semyon Zolotaryov, and Yuri Yudin. With the exception of Zolotoryov, all the hikers are in their early 20s. Zolotoryov, the oldest in the group, would turn 38 during their expedition. A war veteran, Zolotoryov had received training in armed and hand-to-hand combat. He was a late addition to the group as he had been previously slated to join another group for a hike that was expected to take longer than the Dyatlov's group had planned. He was, in all actuality, a stranger to the group, but they accepted him in, although there are some journal entries that speak about some of the members being uncomfortable with this addition. Regardless, on the evening of January 23, 1959, the Dyatlov group of 10 hikers take train number 43 from Sverdlovsk to the city of Sarov and set off on their journey, which is planned to be a three-week excursion. During the train ride, there is an altercation of sorts with another passenger over alcohol. This creates some delays, and the conductor had to involve the police at the station. They arrive in Sarov on the following day. In the train station, anything that disturbs the peace is prohibited. One of the hikers began singing a song and was immediately removed by the police. Once things were settled, they were on their way by early evening, heading towards Ivdel. The group kept diaries of their journey, and I was able to see them at the website dyatlovpass.com. This is a very interesting and well put together site. It contains massive amounts of information and is well worth your time to go through it if you are looking for in-depth information about this incident. It is in these diaries that we see glimpses into the hikers' private lives and feelings. It looked like they had kept personal and travel diaries. Sonata spoke about her not knowing of how she should feel around one of her fellow group members, Yuri Doryshenko. They had previously been a couple, but had broken up shortly before the start of their hike. She speaks of treating him the same as all of the others, but talks of feelings of jealousy when she sees him with other girls. I did also see some talk or reference that Igor Dyatlov had set his sights on Zanata in hopes of taking Doryshenko's place, but she didn't pay this much attention. Other reports were that he was courting her, and they may have been in the beginning stages of a relationship. He also carried a photo of her in his notebook. On January 25th, the group arrives by train to Ivdel. This journey goes smoother than the first train trip. The original bus route they were to, to be on had a slight diversion, and they were given some time off the bus. They do almost miss their bus to continue and to the next leg of their journey when they were late getting back to the bus when it departed. This part of the trip would be to Vigée. Luckily, someone saw them rushing to the bus and hailed the bus driver, who then stopped and let them board. They were packed into the bus pretty tightly given all the gear and people. It wasn't as bad as a previous ride and they were able to enjoy their time and spend much of their trip singing and enjoying the company of fellow bus passengers. The rest of this part of their journey was uneventful. When they arrive at Vigée, they consult with Ivan D. Rempel. He was a forest officer who had previously been a convict that had served time in the labor camps here. At the end of his prison term, he stayed to work at the local forestry. Rempel would help them confirm their routes. He warned the group about the potential challenges they could be facing traveling into the Ural Ridge at this time of year. 
He spoke particularly about the heavy winds. It does seem that the hikers did not seem to take his advice seriously, as no adjustments or discussion occurred. That night, they would spend a fun and relaxing evening going to a local club to watch a movie and lodging themselves at the Vigée Hotel. The following day, they would send out letters to loved ones and friends. It would be the last time that family and friends would hear from them. January 26. The group was able to hire a truck to take them to the logging community known as the 41st Settlement. The ride itself is not very comfortable as they are riding in the back of a truck with nothing but a tent covering them. It is believed that this is the start of one of them starting to feel ill. That person would be Yuri Yudin. When they arrive at the settlement, they are welcomed by the civilian workers there. They watch a couple of movies and spend time in the company of the people there. They spend the night in the dormitory. January 27th. On this day, Yuri Yudin is suffering with some pain due to an inflammation of his sciatica nerve. He had dealt with this issue on previous hikes, one even with Dialov leading. In addition to the sciatica, he also had rheumatism and a congenital heart defect. It seems that while riding in the open back of the truck on their journey to reach the 41st settlement, he had caught a chill. He still decides to continue on with the group on the next part of their journey. The group hires a horse-drawn sled to carry their gear for 24 kilometers to take them to the abandoned North 2 mining settlement. The man they hire to drive the sled is a former inmate. This is not uncommon for the area. Many people would receive sentencing for crimes and then be exiled to Siberia. The land up here in this location is full of former inmates. The man with the horse-drawn sled is heading up in that direction to bring some equipment back, and he agrees to let them put their backpacks on the sled. The trek is slow going, but the hikers are relieved to not have the weight of their backpacks as they make their way on skis. They arrive at the settlement in complete darkness. The settlement they arrive at is full of abandoned houses and warehouses. It was abandoned in 1952. All but one of the houses there are ruined. The one house not in complete ruin has a stove and glass still in the window. This is where they set up camp for the night. January 28. They explore some of the settlement on this day, and Yuri Yudin takes several geology samples. He's not feeling well, and he makes a difficult decision to return with the sled and head back. He worries that his ailments could put a damper on things for the group and ultimately slow them down, costing them precious time. What he doesn't know yet is that this decision is what ultimately saves his life. As he prepares to go back with the sled, he bids farewell to the group. They split up some of his supplies among the remaining hikers, and around 10 a.m., he leaves them to head back. They are saddened to lose him on their journey, but fondly bid him farewell. This would be the last time he sees them alive. Right before he leaves, Dialov does ask Yudin to let the sports club know that they may be facing a possible two to three day delay to account for the heavy ice buildup that they hadn't been aware of. This would make the anticipated return date fall around the 14th to 15th instead of the previously predicted 12th day of February. It seems that Yudin would forget to inform them of the possible delay upon his return. Upon his departure, the remaining nine hikers move along the Lozva River they settle into their first night in the tent along the banks of the Lozva River. Sonata writes in her diary of Dyatlov being, and this is quoted from her diary, rude the entire evening, she just couldn't recognize him, end quote. January 29th. The group on skis planned to make their way from the Lozva River to the mouth of the Ospia River. 
The weather was still good. The ice buildup on their skis still creates problems for them, and this makes it more slow going than they would have liked. They were following a Manzi trail. Manzi were the indigenous people of the area. They were more of the hunter-gatherer tribal type of people. They were very steeped in tradition and their way of life. They were not known to be territorial or aggressive. The group decides to camp a little ways off from the ski tracks. The diaries from the day speak of some internal clashes among some of the group members. It didn't seem to be anything threatening or ominous, more like a bunch of people having had a long day and wanting to rest, but getting on each other's nerves. It was also Yuri Doryshenko's birthday. He would turn 21 on this day. January 30th. The morning finds the Dyatlov group cold and not wanting to get up from bed. The temperature falls in the area to about minus 17 Celsius or one degree Fahrenheit. Normally off to an earlier start, the group doesn't even begin to get their day started until well after 9 a.m. They continue along the Ospia River, but are still dealing with significant ice buildup on their skis. This slows them down considerably. As the day progresses, the winds pick up and the temperature continues to plummet. By early evening, they are feeling worn down and decide to stop for the night. Temperatures would fall this evening into well below zero Fahrenheit. With higher winds to contend with, they settle in among the fir trees and get a campfire started. They are camped along the banks of the Ospia River. January 31st. The morning starts off pretty rough. Tensions and tempers are starting to rise among the group members. I'm sure the bad weather and complexity of the hike were starting to wear on them all. There is bickering among them. Despite this, they are still able to set off in the morning hours. Through much of the trek, they are able to follow trails made by the Manzi. With the strong winds, the trail is sometimes difficult to see or at times even absent. This slows them down tremendously. As they make their way through the forest, they see clear signs that they are getting closer to their destination. Feeling exhausted, the group stops by late afternoon and prepares to spend another night on the banks of the Ospia River. They know their ascent is near and prepare for it by leaving some of their provisions on a raised platform to lighten their backpacks. What happens next is a mix of speculation and theories based on what was found once searchers began looking for the group. There are indications that Dialov made some changes at the last minute on how the route would proceed from here. They had originally planned a different route than the one they would be discovered on. But after January 31st, there are no further journal entries and no one would hear from them again. On February 1st, there are signs that the group got off to a late start. It is discovered that they go quite a ways off their planned route and pitch their tent on the north slope of the Colat Seikel, which is known today as the Dyatlov Pass in honor of the group. Their tent is pitched in an open area with no trees for cover directly out there in the elements. The events that will take place over the next couple of days are still shrouded in mystery. For the outside world, they don't know yet something is amiss and that things have gone very wrong. On February 12th, the group is expected to arrive back in Vijay. This day passes with not a word from the group. Due to the weather conditions and the difficulty of the trek, they assume that they are just delayed. As the days pass, family members start reaching out to the officials to inquire if anyone has seen any members of the group. Officials would reach out to key certain checkpoints along their trek to see if there had been any word from the group. 
No one had any information, and Vijay officials reported that they had not returned there, but they were believed to be due to return by the 15th. As the 15th comes and goes, family members are getting anxious, and they put more pressure on the officials to do something. Sometime between February 19th and February 21st, search parties are sent out to look for the group after much hesitation from officials. Somewhere around this time, Yuri Yudin, and you'll remember him as being one of the hikers who had to leave the trek early because of his health concerns. He returns to Zverdlask in anticipation of being able to reconnect with the group. He has met with questions on how the trek had gone and asked about delays. After much confusion, he realizes that the other members of the group have not yet returned and are still out there. Search parties would consist of officials, other volunteer experienced hikers, and members of the Manzi tribe. Air searches were made, but with no luck due to the high winds and limited visibility. February 26th. The tent of the Dyatlov group is found and an official investigation is opened. However, all that is found is the tent and the message sent back to headquarters states that no people have been located. I also read a few accounts where it stated that the Manzi people had located the tent site several days prior. Perhaps this is what aided the officials in finding the location. The amount of searches and the organization of them so quickly is amazing to me. Many people jumped on board to assist, and it looks like things were plotted out and organized very well. Upon coming across the tent, they find it to be partially covered with several inches of snow. Digging the snow out to gain access to the tent, they discover cuts in the tent that appear to be from the inside. Once they get inside the tent, they find the tent is full of the hiker's supplies, provisions, skis, and clothing. They find all of their backpacks, several pairs of boots, jackets, and other belongings. The search groups are still optimistic, but all of that comes to an abrupt end on February 27th. About two kilometers from the tent, searchers began to discover bodies. The bodies of Doryshenko, Kravenyshenko, Dyatla, and Kolmogorova are found. Autopsy reports would indicate that they all died from hypothermia. While that makes sense that they could die due to exposure, there are some things that are starting to raise a lot of questions. Their bodies all have multiple bruising. Footprints from the group are still visible in the snow, and appears that most of them are made with bare feet. This would indicate that they left their tent very quickly with seemingly no time to dress properly. In addition, let us remember that there were signs that the tent itself had been cut open from the inside. There are also signs that some of them died earlier than others as clothing was removed from some and found on the others in an attempt to keep warm. There's evidence of a fire and fir branches that have been collected to keep a fire going, which shows that they were in the right mindset to try to combat the elements. However, the lack of proper clothing suggests that something is definitely amiss. The trees there show signs of um, having been climbed. Uh, I don't know if this was them trying to get away from something or if they were climbing up the trees to try to get branches for the fire. This is another one of those things that hasn't been determined. On March 2nd, the cache they left along the trail with the extra provisions is found by searchers. On March 5th, the body of Slobodan is found. He is found in under almost two feet of snow. The autopsy reports would indicate that he dies from hypothermia. It also says that he has a fracture to the frontal part of his skull.
It isn't until May 5th that the den and the bodies of Dubininya, Kolvatov, Thabobrno, and Zolotaryov are found. It appears that a den was created to try to survive the elements. And this is where it gets really confusing for me. So far, we have seen that the other members of the group have died from hypothermia. While hypothermia was part of the cause for the four remaining hikers, it wasn't the only cause. All four of them suffered some significant injury or trauma to their bodies. Dabininya's cause of death is listed as massive hemorrhaging in the right ventricle, multiple bilateral rib fractures, and internal bleeding of the thoracic cavity, injuries consistent with impact of a great force. It is also noted that her tongue is missing. The medical examiner lists her death as through violence. Kolvatov's cause of death is listed as hypothermia. He has some open wounds and the soft tissue of his eyes are missing. The medical examiner states that he believes that low temperature caused his death and also listed the cause as by violence. The Beau Brignol was dressed much better than most of the hikers and this seems to indicate that he may have been outside the tent at the time of whatever event took place. However, he suffered a much more violent death he had multiple skull fractures, and I have read reference that stated that the fractures were like the effect one might see if struck by a car at a high rate of speed. The fractures would have probably rendered him unconscious or in such a state of delirium that he would not have been able to do anything. It is likely that death would have occurred within a very short amount of time. Zola Terio was also dressed for the elements, and he may have also been outside at the time of the initial incident. His clothes didn't stop him from suffering a violent death, though. He had multiple fractures to the right ribs and internal hemorrhaging in the pleural cavity. In the autopsy report, it is stated that this looks to be the cause by high impact to the chest area as a result of, quote, falling, squeezing, or throwing. His cause of death is listed as by violence. What always puzzles me on these four is the presence of the den shelter. All four of them suffered severe, violent, and traumatic injuries. How and when did they have time to build a shelter of any type? Autopsy reports state that death occurred for the entire group on February 2nd. The injuries that this group received would have made it very difficult for any of them to have had the ability or strength to build a shelter. For a reason I have not been able to figure out, radiation tests were ordered and done on the victims, and on May 27th, the radiation analysis report on the clothes and tissue of the Beninia, Kolvatov, the Beau Brignol, and Zolotaryov are released. There was radioactive material found on several garments. At least one of the group members worked in a location where radioactive material was used. But why this was initially ordered is still a puzzle to me. As word started to get out about the fate of these hikers, speculations and theories would abound. What killed these hikers? Was it a force of nature or something more sinister? There are many theories as to what happened on their last fateful night. Some of these theories range from plausible to the extreme, so let's go over some of the most popular theories. Probably one of the most popular theories is that of an avalanche. This theory does make some plausible sense. It could explain why there were cuts made from the inside of the tent as the group rushed to leave the tent. It could also account for the lack of proper clothing on most of the group members if they had to leave the tent in haste, but here is where that theory falls apart. Several members of the group suffered severe trauma to their bodies, which would have resulted in death within minutes to hours. 
However, the ones who died from the severe trauma appeared to have survived longer than the rest of the group. The other thing is, is footprints leading away from the tent indicate that they walked away from the tent in an orderly fashion. There weren't signs that they ran chaotically like you might expect in the event of an avalanche. Also, these footprints were still visible several weeks later when the search crews located the tent. There also doesn't appear to be strong indications of an avalanche given the footprints still being visible and the tent still being securely affixed to the ground with all of their belongings still inside. It is possible that the strong winds may have led the group to fear the possibility of avalanche and that is why they left the tent. But even so, it doesn't make sense that they would leave the tent without the proper clothing and gear. Another popular belief is a result of a military exercise or possible attack. There were reports of strange orange lights in the sky. Many of these reports were on dates after the demise of the group, but there still were some that were reported around the same time. There's also speculation that the Soviet Union was doing military testing in the area at the time of their deaths. Naturally occurring infrasound is a phenomenon that has gained attention as well. Infrasound is a type of vibration that has a frequency that can't be heard with the human ear. It can induce fear, cause disorientation, shortness of breath, blood pressure, and balance changes. The unique topography of this area makes this theory a possibility, but it doesn't explain the orderly fashion in which they walked away from the tent or explain why they didn't return to the tent. The area that they were in is home to the Manzi tribes. It is also an area that was close to prison labor camps. The theory that they were potentially attacked by either one of these groups was considered. However, there are no signs of struggles, no signs of a fight, and the only footprints visible are those of the group themselves. I think animal attacks would fall into this theory too, but again, there is no evidence to indicate anything like that even happened. Also, the Manzi tribe is more likely to help someone than they would be to harm them. They are known as friendly, helpful people and even participated in the search for the hikers. In fact, it was the Manzi people that found the tent initially. The events surrounding the deaths of these hikers lie shrouded in mystery. There is no one-size-fits-all theory. While there is plausibility in some of the theories, there is enough other things that make them questionable. What really happened that fateful night? This has been a mystery I have always been fascinated with, and I have read and watched many things over the years about this. I have only covered briefly the events of this tragedy. There have been scores of books written, articles, documentaries, and even movies that blend fact with fiction. I will list in the show notes some of the sites that I found extremely helpful in my research, but it doesn't even come close to the amount of information out there. I'm going to bring up this website again because... It's a fantastic website, but the website located at diatlovpass.com, it does really have one of the most thorough collections of information that I've ever seen on this. I can't speak highly enough of the site, and if you're looking for well-laid-out material information, this is a great starting point. I thank you for joining me today on this journey on the Mystery Barn podcast alongside the hikers of the Diatlov Pass. I hope that you have found it interesting, and I have piqued your interest in this mysterious event. I'm your host, Heather, and if you have any comments or just want to reach out with any theories you may have, you can contact me at mysterybarnpodcast at gmail.com or find me on Twitter at mysterybarnpod. Thank you, and we'll see you soon. Mm -hmm.